Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Online Warriors podcast. I am one of your three hosts, Illegal86, joined as always by my good friends Nerd Bomber and Tactic. And this is a very special episode because we are kicking things off today with a fourth guest in the house. Daniel Greenberg is joining us from George Mason University, where he teaches game design topics in the computer game design program, focusing on history and analysis. So we're hoping to have a great conversation with him today. Daniel, how are you doing? Terrific. Thank you for having me on. It is our pleasure to have you. And yeah, looking forward to kind of kind of diving into this this is nominally a gaming podcast i think so we have a lot of questions and i'm I'm pretty sure you have a lot of answers so to lead things off can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got your start in game design academia yeah sure so like most people in this sphere obviously i have a history of playing these things growing up not to date myself but the first two things i had in the house were a 2600 and a commodore 64 so i've kind of been inundated this stuff from the get-go what got me started in game design academia actually was, in addition to being a video game professor, I work as a programmer for the federal sector. I do a lot of work for you know U.S. Postal Service, Department of Justice, Health and Human Services. And my degrees were originally in that sort of, I guess, what you might call like serious programming sphere. But I found myself in the labs at George Mason. I would be doing my homework. I'd be making an operating system from scratch or something like intellectually stimulating, but also kind of like mind-numbingly boring. And I'd look over and there were the game design students. And they were making these beautiful you know, models and rigs and, and they really knew what they were doing, but they get stuck in a programming question. I'd go over, I'd help them with it, go back to my homework. They get stuck again, I go over, help them, go back to my homework. And after a while, I was like, they have much better homework than I do. <laughs> so I actually switched my major from a straight computer science degree to a computer science degree with a concentration in game design. Uh, and when I came back to the university to work on a master's, instead of doing a master's of science, I did a master's of arts in computer game design and followed that through to graduate teaching assistant and finally uh, all the way up to professor. Well, uh, I mean, I think I speak for all three of us, obviously, super, super impressive. And again, super, super happy to to have you on. Uh, I was at one point a part of the academic world myself, uh, actually until very recently. So, yeah, it can be a it can be a winding road. So I guess we can dive more now into video games, right? So yeah, you mentioned that you were inundated with games as a as a kid. Did you ever think that video games and gaming would ever become the staple that it is in today's society? You know, I'll admit I'm still a little surprised by the financial side of things. Like the fact that games now pull in more per year than movies, books, sports, television. You know, from, mm-hmm. from a strictly financial standpoint, it's still a little surprising to me. I don't know that I'm not surprised that they are the cultural thing that they are because every kid I knew in school growing up at least casually understood video games. There was sort of that divide between the kids in the 80s who knew it and played it, at least understood what it was, um, and the parents who really didn't. Um, So, you know, it's not really surprising a generation, two generations later those of us who have kids, you know, those who are raising kids, we grew up with the stuff. So we kind of expect it, you understand it, like culturally, it's no longer counterculture, so to speak. But um, I, I still I get surprised sometimes by the financial side of things, for sure. At what point do you think gaming turned the corner from a fun sort of diversion to a true art form and storytelling medium? <laughs> um, I, li- I like to joke sometimes that we, we are so far past the point of arguing our game's art and now we're just arguing how good or bad the art is. <laughs> um, I don't know that we ever 
really, it was hard to perceive it maybe at the time, right? Especially um, how commercial and how simple the stuff that most people knew, right? Your Space Invaders and Pac-Man games, you know, Mm -hmm. people weren't playing the stuff that Muriel Tramis was making. People weren't seeing some of the really artistic stuff coming out of, you know, especially internationally. France had an amazing PC scene in the 80s. So it's not, it's not always visible, but it's always been art. I, I think arguably the medium doesn't become art simply because it's recognized as such. We as people come to the realization that this creative medium that we're developing is itself the art. And I, I think maybe you say turning the corner from game to, to art. I, I, I think it's more that the people making games now feel comfortable enough to start tackling things that they maybe felt pressure not to do in the past or felt like the toolkit was was insufficient to express what they wanted to to say. James Cameron says he wrote Avatar in high school and you know I I believe him when he says it, you know, unobtainium and all. Mm-hmm. Um but he but he knew <laughs> that he he couldn't make it at the time. He didn't have the financial, you know, support to his vision was so grand he couldn't really tackle it. Um, so we made a bunch of other stuff first, you know, and he did great. He made Terminator, he made Titanic, the guy's, you know, a legend in his field. But I, I do think there are some game designers who played it safe earlier on, or at least in order to make it in the industry, the stuff that really worked well, partially due to limited hardware, partially due to, to limits in software. I mean, the coding side of things early on, that was a true art form because of the limitations in RAM. I mean, you hear time and time these stories of the clever stuff they did just because of disk space. Oh, yeah. Like Nasir's assembly code is ridiculous. I, anyone that's ever worked on stuff with him will, will praise up and down how, how good he was at, at writing code. Yeah. I mean, the, the, obviously, the, the memory limitations, working with chipsets and, and even the, the cost of chips and, and trying to minify your code to the point where, you know, you're doing clever things like addressing memory and shifting memory simultaneously you know, that you're manipulating your counters simultaneous with like frame shifts so that you're, you know, you're refreshing a frame on screen at the same time that you're toggling some in-game variable. Yeah, you have, you have to be really creative when you're working with like a four kilobyte game versus, you know, a 400 megabyte game. Yeah, we've come a long way. <laughs> I, I, it's it's no, no news to anybody saying that. But yeah, I mean, I think it is true what you said, you know, it's, it's, it has always been art. It's just, you know, when did we start perceiving it as that and wasn't necessarily turning a corner? Maybe not so much. It's just maybe one day we all woke, we all woke up and we're like, wow, these video games, you know, they're, I mean, now we have games that are, they're akin to movies. They're, they're designed like movies. You know? oh, they they and, want to be movies. They want very badly right. to be movies. Right. And, and no one would argue obviously that movies aren't art. So at, th- at this point, like you said, you know, that the conversation is, is, is over <laughs> as far as. You know, and like, we've wanted that for a long time. My wife, Alex, and I are working on a, a film noir, game noir panel for MAGFest uh, in January. And one of the games we're, you know, watching to kind of uh, get a picture for how games have tackled noir, comic noir, neo-noir, whatever, is, is Snatcher. And Snatcher wants very badly to be a movie. Most things Hideo Kojima makes want very badly to be movies, but... right. Yeah, I was I was actually going to bring him up. Um, what was Death Stranding? You know, like the trailer for Death Stranding. I mean, not only did they put the, the Walking Dead guy in it, but yeah, it just it like you said, it wants to be a movie. 
Yeah, you, you're, you're right on. Like, that's the difference, right? We're talking 1987 versus what was Death Stranding, 2018, 2019? Yeah, yeah, I want to I say 2019. I'm actually not sure. It's a good question. So, I mean, we're huge gulf, right? 30 years of technology improving. And now all of the, the weapons you have at your disposal as, um, you know, a game designer versus the limitations that you had in that, in that previous space. Uh, and the limitations will, you know, necessity breeds um, the creativity there. You'll come up with some really clever ways to do things, but you're still kind of hamstrung, right? You have to kind of, the vision is compromised by what the medium will permit it to be. Now, when you have this sort of ridiculous freedom, um, the budget is the constraint, right? It's, mm-hmm. do we have five years? Do we have, you know, $100 million? You know, what what is the bandwidth that we have to, to do what we want to do in a way that before it was, can I even get this to, to work in, in the, um, the system of choice? Well, and the other funny thing is, in a sense, we've come full circle now where I think before, you know, a movie would come out and the movie, the studio or something would go to some game designer and say, hey, we need a game that is based on E.T. And you have a certain amount of time. And, I, and yeah, and, I, and obviously that was that that particular example was a disaster. But now it, it's turning into the reverse where a game comes out. And, you know, admittedly, like 10 years later or something, you know, television studios are saying we need a Halo TV show right now. Or HBO is saying we need a a TV show based on The Last of Us because games have attained that level of, you know, story. It's no longer can we, it's should we. Right. And and that's a fun subject for me because that kind of gets into my thesis. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of transmediation. Uh, basically, I can't, can't say I am, no. <laughs> I, bas- migrating something from one form to another. So the movie based on the book, the the game based on the movie. It is when you take something from one art form and move it to another art form. And it's each has its own strengths and weaknesses, right? Books have this limitless creativity because your mind's responsible for filling in the audiovisual cues for the descriptions you're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, movies can really wow you and impress you, but they're limited by you must accept the provided audiovisual presentation as the story, right? Because the in that case, the, the film decides what the characters look like, what the characters sound like. When you're playing uh, an RPG, uh, if the RPG has voiceovers, that's what the characters sound like. If the RPG just has text, your mind will fill in what those characters sound like. And so even within a single medium, design decisions will go a long way in kind of influencing that experience. And I, I think from a, a transmutative standpoint, it's exciting to see games tackled this way because interactivity, um, and this is something we Games Academia has known for like a long time, games are really, really good at getting your attention. Um, they're not always great at doing something with it once they have it. So the interactivity of games makes them really, really appealing and really, really connecting. And the games that succeed in capturing people's imaginations, um, the ones that really have evocative narratives and the elements of play reinforce those narratives. You know, how well do they do when they try to shift to a medium that no longer has that advantage, right? Um, That the viewer has to get involved and excited in the world without the advantage of the mechanics of the game, the play of the game, the flow that you know was designed. Um, you have none of that numerology in your in your corner. You have to sell them entirely on plot, characters, visual, whatever. Um, and it's challenging. It, it's not always easy to do. I think there's a reason uh, video game movies, in particular, have had such a um, checkered isn't really even fair because that assumes fifty percent. You know, such a fail rate amongst viewers is because it is difficult to give up that tool. And it's even more difficult to not recognize that the reason people are so engaged in a particular story, in a particular series, is in part because of those elements. 
Because yeah, we do get invested in the plot and the characters, but some of that is subconscious. Some of that is subconscious because we get invested because the game does a good job of hooking us sufficiently uh, that we become invested in those characters. Right. So you're you're actually there's a debate, you know, as far as what element of a game is more important to its success: storytelling or gameplay mechanics. And you were kind of just talking about that that dichotomy. Which side of that debate? Where do you fall on that? To make a game good, what do you think is the more important thing? I. I am personally someone that enjoys a, a good plot, but I think I'm wrong. I, I think, personally speaking, if you had to have one, give me a game that does something interesting versus a game that says something interesting. Mm-hmm. Because a game that does something interesting is going to inspire 100 games, some of which will say something interesting. A good mechanic or a good a genre definition will inspire so much creativity and, and gets you a, through a whole new way of playing we have lots of ways of telling stories, right? We have a, a hundred different media um, that we can use to tell stories. And I think games are a terrific one to do so. And a lot of my students want to tell stories. I think one of the more common things, I always ask questions at the beginning of every semester, you know, why do you want to make games? And so many students say, you know, they have a story they want to tell. They want to make people feel emotions and they want to uh, influence people's feelings on subjects. And so there is a deep desire to use it as a, a method of conveyance. Uh, but I do think a mechanic has a much bigger, it's its a bigger draw, bigger staying power, and that it can be a vehicle for much more than, say, a single story can be. A really well-told story may inspire, you know, uh, its own little avenue, but more often than not, it's, it's really doing something compelling with a game um, that will become an opportunity to kind of expand outward. I'm very much a proponent of anything that is going to produce more to kind of propagate the um, the developer of Bubble Bobble, Futsiko Mitsuji, uh, MTJ, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, has an amazing quote. And it's, it's a quote that I love. It's in the, if you ever get the Taito Legends, uh, I think it's PlayStation 2. Um, there's like a little DVD or video that's that's on there. Um, and he says that, you know, he he wanted to make Bubble Bobble to, to bring couples into the arcade, to bring them closer together so they, they could play the game together. But that he went from being a developer to being a teacher because he decided he would rather plant trees than be a tree. You know, that he he realized that even though he enjoyed developing games, that he could do so much more long-term that if he created game developers. And I think a game that inspires a mechanic or a game that inspires more creativity in its wake, to me, is more important, more interesting than a game that has a compelling narrative. Right. And the example that jumps to mind for me and i like i don't know what the first first person shooter was but obviously whoever made that and whatever it was the story was secondary to like you said kind of the far-reaching thing it did which is establish an entire genre and establish what so much of the gaming world is today which is first person shooters that nominally the gameplay mechanics are often very similar but they can tell sometimes pretty intense stories. I think, I know there were some first-person shooters in like um, universities in the 70s, but I think the first commercial one I actually really remember was Midi Maze, which was an Atari ST game that also came out for some other systems. Do you you remember Faceball 2000? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Faceball 2000 was basically either like a a D-make or remake or something. It was was Midi Maze for consoles. Midi Maze was named as such because it used the MIDI port to like link up multiple machines. It was actually a, not online, but it was a local multiplayer shooter um, where you played as these little, you know, note you know, big, round, smiley sort of things. Mm-hmm. 
and because it used the MIDI port, that was kind of why they themed it that way. And that was, that's, I think when I think of first person shooters, especially because they're like action oriented, very commonly multiplayer is a big chunk of it. If not like the, the most famous, you know, except for like your really narrative dive, like Wolfenstein, Doom type games. A lot of those first person shooters, I think of them as multiplayer experiences. So MIDI Maze is usually the first right. one I go to. Yeah, it, the, even you know, within that genre, there is a pretty, pretty b- broad spectrum of games that care about story. And then some games that are like, okay, we know that we're not, people aren't coming to these for story. They're coming to these for really solid first person shooter gameplay mechanics. But I think of like, Call of Duty, I feel like, took a turn where their stories turned into blockbuster movies. Yeah, game, yeah. Another, another example of game that want to be a movie. And another example, I guess you say, of games that know necessarily that that's not why they're there or are, you know, uh, they're willing to back burner it. One of the most brilliant examples of that, one of my favorite examples of that is Doom 2016. Right. Doom 2016 yeah. was so aware of how players may play it that they may want to consume the plot, but that Doom guy by his design is so ruthlessly, efficiently violent just because of the way people play Doom that you're capable of literally ripping the plot off the wall and smashing it if you want. Like the game is designed to allow you to just, you know, blow up cutscenes, you know, that are in monitors or kind of, you know, just stampede your way through the game. Um, almost completely devoid uh, of the story if you want to, or, you know, for players that want to consume it, they're, they're welcome to, you know, stay there and watch it. Well, I mean, amongst all of the different genres of games, regardless of the mechanics, you know, I feel like there's always certain game design elements that are kind of the underpinnings of video games as a whole. And what do you think are the the main game design elements that make up a really good game and make up some of the most memorable games that have really helped to, like, advance the medium forward? I think games... Typically, you have some sort of avatar or protagonist you're playing as, whether it's an ensemble thing like Final Fantasy VI or, you know, an individualized game. You are taking on these roles and these characters are defined by how they act, but also what you can do with them, right? Um, Mario and Sonic, Mario is leaning backwards in a lot of his promo pictures. He's kind of going up. It's vertical. It's a very jump-based, methodical platforming. Sonic is leaning forward. He's got his arms out. It's a very horizontal, you know, speed-oriented platforming. They're very similar games, but they play very, very differently. And they inspire different interests, different groups, different audiences. I think to be an effective game in your genre or to to really kind of sell what you're, you're doing, it's a game that gets people sucked into the role. You know, it, it is fun to set yourself aside for a little bit and be blah. There's there's exceptions to that, non-narrative games, games, um, I think of stuff from, you know, as far back as Tetris to as recent as like Super Hexagon, mm-hmm. uh, games that are very explicitly tight core experiences around one sort of mechanic that is a fun almost addicting mechanic uh puzzle games very very common genre for that but a lot of other genres a lot of other games uh rely upon you enjoying the experience of being this other character you know even if you don't necessarily relate to them you don't put the controller down and go you know gosh i wish i was bubsy but you um you you do do enjoy the experience uh because the verbs that have been defined for that character the level design that they've put them in that sort of that mesh of layout, your character's abilities, it all kind of flows nicely. One of the first games we did for the channel was the original um, Ninja Guide N. Again, speaking of games that want to be movie, Tecmo Theater, having all those cutscenes and kind of the presentation of the game. Mm-hmm. But Ryu Hayabusa is 
He's not easy to control, but once you understand how to do it, there's sort of a really elegant flow to the way that the level layout is and which ninjutsu abilities you can get, where you can get them. Richard did a bang-up job um, like mastering that game so he could actually beat it for the channel. Uh, and it's not easy, but what the game asks of you and how it is laid out, it is really well designed. Uh, and I think those are the games that people go back to or people look at and they understand that, okay, the, the, the design choices that were made, the way the levels are laid out, the way the power-ups are set up, the way checkpoints are placed, um, what the character's allowed to do. Okay, I see why I'm not allowed to slide in this game because that would invalidate or it kind of ruins these puzzles or these levels. I like games that think about how far can your character jump? How wide do those pits need to be to make them? Where are the landing zones? How engaging or safe is that stuff? It's It gets into minutia, right? And that's design. You know, if you are a, a painter, pointillism is about, you know, choosing your colors wisely and understanding how the interoperability of those colors, you know, at closer range, at farther range, perception-wise kind of bleed into this beautiful picture. If you are you know, doing sumi-e and you have to think about, you know, the pressure in your brush strokes and what that's going to leave you on paper or on canvas. Uh, if you are a musician and, you know, your composition is every bit as important, important right, as mm -hmm. the play you make, um, it, it really is understanding the interaction of those various elements of design. To me, a, a game that stands this time, a game that is important, a game that, um, you know, is seminal to games uh, as a medium uh, is one in which those things kind of, they, they all come together. Uh, the games, you always read reviews for games that are 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, whatever. They they all tend to follow a similar pattern. You know, they say this stuff works so well together. And that's when when you're playing a game and the different disparate elements that have been developed by people are done consciously and, and in such a way that they work with each other, that they complement each other. Um, you know, they're greater than the sum of their parts. Um, those are those are the games that that matter. Those are the ones that you'll really kind of come back to again and again when you're researching. Yeah, and I mean, I think that definitely tracks too because all of the the games that really stand out to me is the ones that I kind of put in my top, you know, ten list of all time have that cohesive element where everything comes together to just paint that one beautiful gaming picture. Now, you mentioned a few times your channel, and you're the founder of Winterion Game Studios, and one of your projects is Ion Gaming, where you play through retro games and then discuss kind of their ins and outs. How did you kind of decide to start that project, and how does that influence your academic teachings, and how does that draw influence from your teachings? So this is, I guess I'll, I'll show my age a little bit again here. When I was working on my master's degree, I got permission from the university. I said, you know, I'd like to do a short video series explaining to students what is difficulty. Um, what do we, you know, when we're talking about parallax scrolling, what does that really mean? How is that implemented? How do we do things like uh, transforms, uh, rotations? You know, what does the uh, look like when you're doing matrix math for, for that sort of stuff? You know, just a really simple like introductory series. And they gave me the green light. So I bought a couple thousand dollars worth of equipment. I got an Adobe subscription. I was all set up to do all this recording of video of games and like take that video and move it into After Effects and pause it and point to stuff and describe stuff. And then the administration came over my head and said, no, we're actually not going to, to give you credit for that after all. I'm sorry, but I had already broken all the equipment out. I'd already used the equipment. Like I was going to get pennies on the dollar if I tried to return this stuff. So it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I have an entire recording studio at home now. What am I going to do with it? And one of my friends goes, well, you could, you know, there. this is 2015, I think, like early 2015. He goes, you know, we could do Let's Plays because they were, I think they're not as popular as they were on YouTube now, obviously. But um, back then, I think they were a little more so. And, you know, we, we could do Let's Plays. 
Uh, and showing my age, I immediately turn to go, well, what's a Let's Play? So now we've been doing that for, I guess, six years now. It's the our fifth season's kind of been scuttled pretty hard by COVID. Obviously, we've been separated most of the time. We've gotten minimal time to kind of all get together at the studio here. Mm-hmm. But the idea behind Ion Gaming was to have a Let's Play channel where it was sort of a two-dimensional look on games. What I mean by that is if you were interested in just Let's Plays, you could watch all like just the Ion Gaming episodes. If you were interested in just academic panel lectures, you could watch all of our academic panel lectures because we'll I'll go to, you know, MAGFest, Too Many Games, Retro World Expo, Gamer Grace out in Chicago. Uh, you know, so we'll get invited and you know, we'll do these talks either online or in person. And we've been doing that for years. So that's like one section of it. And then we try to, and it's we're a little behind on this. Um, the idea was at the end of every Let's Play, we do a review episode. And the review episode talks about the game, why it matters, our experiences playing it. It's sort of like a 30-minute to an hour sort of to just put a to a bow on that individual Let's Play. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're interested in a specific game or a genre game, you could just watch all of the, you know, those. Like, I want to watch the whole Secret of Mana series from first episode to last episode, and then the review, and then the bonus episodes, and all the other content. So if you're interested in a game, you could get all the content for that game. If interested in a type of content you can watch that kind of content for all the different games so that was sort of the inspiration was to do sort of a 2d style layout to the channel i don't know that the videos are always reflective of my academic teaching style the the, the lecture panel videos certainly are i plan out most of those uh, the ones that i spearhead uh, are certainly designed the way i would design lecture topics uh, the panels that i've sat on with other people i'd argue that my cadence and sort of the way i go about justifying things i talk on are again very similar to the academic teaching style but the 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 games themselves when we sit and play the games i'm not trying to do an academic lecture there there i'm trying to capture the experience of what it's like to be on the couch with friends playing that game Um, because i think there is something to it i think let's plays besides being transformative as in like each performance of a game each person playing the game plays a little differently you get a slightly different experience the same way you would like actors you know theater Mm -hmm. stage a hundred different uh, theater companies can all perform the Scottish play. They're going to get slightly different versions out of it. You're going to get slightly different performances, better, worse, whatever. I think there's something valuable to the experience of play for a game because there is something transformative about watching a let's play and the, the tone, the tenor of like the attitude of the people playing it, the way they play the game versus a long play where there's sort of the silent methodical uh, intent to a long play and they're less transformative, arguably, I guess, both from a legal standpoint and also sort of the, the perceptive one, uh, that I think the Let's Plays are valuable in that they add something you're not getting from just experiencing the game uh, independently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting in someone else's perspective, like you said, everybody experiences a game differently. And I think that's because, as we were talking about before, you know, especially in a lot of the games where there's things open to interpretation, your brain fills in some of the blanks. So seeing someone else's interpretation of those blanks adds a little bit something to that game experience. You know, one of the things that your channel focuses on, you you guys do a lot of retro games. So as a big fan of retro games, what would you say are some must-play classics that you think everybody should play at least once? Um, so we mentioned <laughs> Howard Scott Warshaw got a very brief mention earlier about ET. Play ET, but play it with the instruction manual. I think there is something very valuable in seeing ET from the perspective of the challenge of making that game and the time frame it was made and the limitations of the system and the complexity of the game as written out in the instruction manual and at least knowing what it is you need to do and then try to play it because I have so many students who come in and say, 
I'm I'm so excited to learn about uh, video games. Uh, I hope you don't make us play ET. That's the worst game ever made. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> and it's you know I don't really think it is. I don't even think it's the worst game on its own system. I think if I really dug through the 2600 library, I could probably find plenty of games that are worse than ET. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as frustrating to play blindly, to walk in and play without knowing what you're doing, without reading on what you're doing. You know, the expectation is a little different there. I mean, remember, this is the era that if you wanted to fire up a PC game, it would tell you, what is the fifth word on page 26, right, for their copy protection? There's just an expectation in that era that you're reading the material that comes with these titles, whether it's for copy protection purposes or understanding the game. Yeah, I think people, right. players today, like it's so different because now you get a game, especially I'm thinking like console games and even obviously PC games. Now they're all digital. You don't get that manual with games anymore, but that they used don't. to be a staple. Like every, any yeah. game that you got, I remember back in the day opening a new game and the first thing I would do before I would even pop the disc in, I would break out the manual and I would just read it cover to cover. And I feel like that's kind of lost in translation these days, especially <laughs> when you go back and look at those older games because nobody knows to do that anymore it's unreal it's gotten so bad it's not only are there no menus in the in the in the boxes you open up the box there's no menu you put in the game okay i go to the help screen and this is i don't know which nhl this is this might be i don't know 1920 or something you go to the help screen and when you click help it's just a single line of text on the page that says go to ea.com slash nhl like that's their help menu they don't tell you the you know anything about the game beyond all right just go to the website yeah, no, it's 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 crazy. It's almost numbing how there's just this assumption, right, that the the consumer knows how to absorb the product in a way that they never would have assumed 30 years ago. And it's honestly kind of crazy when you think about when I tried to introduce my parents to to games, especially like my dad always played games, but my mom is kind of dabbling a little bit now and the things that we take for granted as people who have been immersed in the the gaming culture for so long, like we just know there are certain things like you put a controller in front of me and you put a game in and I kind of know how to move around without even having to read any instructions. But not everybody is going to have that insight and experience. So it is it's very wild to me that the help options in games these days are very limited. Yeah, well, I, I've I've experienced um, which also, by the way, I never thought et was was going to be the answer to this question this question so props i guess for 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 surprising me yeah i am one of the people who have i've never played it but i've heard so often that it's the worst game of all time i've seen people play it it looks like an atari philosopher don't believe the hype right but yeah i i've experienced this too and i don't know if if you guys have but uh i used to play this game for the nintendo 64 called jet force gemini which was one of the first shooters i ever played and was obsessed with this game. I mean, poured so many hours into it. And then, I don't know, it, it had to be four or five years ago at this point, but obviously many years after I put that game down, and I'd played many shooters since uh, with, you know, Xbox 360 controllers and PlayStation controllers, all of that. And when you go back and try to play a shooter on an N64 controller with the one stick... Ugh. It, it, it's, it's, so, it's so foreign. Like, it, 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 it feels like it, you're like, how did I do this when I was eight years old? And how did I do it well and easily? And now going back to it, it's just, it's this weird, like, I don't know, some mental shift happens that you go back and you're like, oh my goodness. I actually I was... had to do this recently. Um, this is a, a segue and apologies for the plug, um, but I'm a writer and editor on a certain N64 guidebook that's coming out uh, probably next year. Uh, and the, you know, we split up the work. I had to play Hexen amongst other games for the, for the book. And yeah, it's, it is funny going back to those early Silicon graphics, um, the single analog 
the bizarre N64 controller and, and how foreign right. it looks when you first grab it. And then six months into working on the book, just how natural it felt again. And there's yeah. this bizarre learning curve to that particular accessory that just makes it, you know, it's such a unique system. It was a really fun one to go back and, and to write on again and to, to sort of uh, investigate because it's such a weird border straddling, not entirely sure what it wants to be system. It's the controller is like just so bizarre. It's, it's like Lovecraftian. There's, there's, there's three, you have two hands, right? But there's three places at which to hold the controller. It's just like, when I look back at that controller and I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. And, and you, you do, you know, establish, like you said, if you go back to it, I'm sure if I went back now and I played it for a while, it would feel more natural, but there's still going to be a, a one section of the controller that you have to just move your hands all over the place to even use. It's just, it's, yeah, and most games just don't expect you to, right? Most games are going to use either the D-pad or the analog stick. Right. Or they're going to use the analog stick for play and the D-pad for like minor things like... Um, Menu options or something. Yeah, macros or something. So speaking of plugs, um, I'm going to give you another opportunity potentially. Since Woo. Winter On holds a studio title, are there any games that you have developed or are that you're currently developing? I mean, it's, we want to. Uh, I, so I made winter on game studios originally in 2010 I've, I've owned the company for over a decade and it was originally designed because i did plan on making games originally board games um before we moved on to to digital stuff this is before i decided to switch my major oh interesting um i was actually considering making tabletop games uh for 10 years uh, i was a high school dropout uh and when i dropped out of high school i got a job at a local game store and the owners of the game store who are still like family to this day they're the godparents of my my son they uh, were wonderful, you know, and they're like, you know, if you're going to keep working here, we think you should you should go to school. Um, why don't we get you into community college? You know, you, you're too smart to be a high school dropout. Like four days into working that game store, I got hired on as the janitor. Uh, and four days into working there, uh, the owner saw me. They had a, like a land cafe set up at the store. And he saw me at one of the machines and I had opened up the registry editor and was doing some hex editing because I think I wanted to get... X-Wing versus TIE Fighter working, and there was this like known bug with that particular version of X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, and I think I was just changing some some D-word values or something to, to get the game to run correctly. And of course, the screen just looks like gibberish when he comes up there, and you know, he's like, well, if you're if you're doing this stuff, why are, why are you my janitor? You know, So we came to an agreement where I'd be a janitor for a couple hours, and then I would do their website. Um, and then when I was done working on their website for the day, I would go to you know campus, and I would take my classes or whatever. And, you know, They kind of got me back on that, that path. To which I'm eternally grateful, but it also created a love for games for me, the tabletop medium especially, because we sold them, you know, it was the, the store with every type of game was the tagline. You know, they sold everything from Warhammer miniatures to comic books, board games, collectible card games, RPG stuff, um, historical war games, you know, this, the, the gamut. It was kind of a, a kind of a mecca for gaming. We would have Games Workshop employees would come from the UK over to the US and they would come to our store to show investors an example of what it's like for like their third party stores. Um, it was a what wonderful a, place to work. What's your favorite board game? I, I'm, I'm a board game aficionado myself and I, I did not know that you were, uh, what's, what's your favorite? I know it's on the spot question. We didn't, that wasn't one you could prepare for and there's a billion games, but one that I am usually excited to break out, um, on any given opportunity. I've enjoyed recently Sagrada, uh, which is a four-player board game. I love game, Sagrada. Uh, building, love Sagrada. right? Um, stained Glass. Splendor uh, yep. is always fun to play. Although I find playing Splendor without the uh, the patrons at the top is a little more interesting to me. I don't know, they're a little broken. 
what else uh it is always fun with i have a group of friends that we like to play um more complicated board games uh sometimes we'll fire up battlestar galactica yep play that um, one once. i'm not a huge fan of the series necessarily but the game is is really wonderfully designed older stuff i don't mind going back and playing terrible things like life in monopoly or yeah there's a character to those that yeah like it's i don't know monopoly frustrates me to no end but there's there's nothing like monopoly it's, it's why it has that staying power yeah monopoly is actually i think the most recent game we played for the channel i got the pleasure of finally after de- i should have done it a decade sooner uh, i got to write an article for retroware.com uh, and i love john d and lance and those guys that that stood that up all those years ago and I consider a lot of those retroware people friends. And I did an article on a guy who was a doctor out in Winfield, Kansas, uh, Don Philip Gibson. And he was, you know, he delivered kids. He was a church organist. To him, making games was an afterthought. Um, but he could not afford the software you would need in a, a doctor's office to keep track of patients. So he wanted to teach himself to program. And he taught himself to program by making Monopoly because Monopoly has very well understood rules. It's fun to him anyway. And if you can make that, you know, then that was how he was going to teach himself Borland Turbo Pascal. And his Monopoly, his version of Monopoly, it was, he released it on old bulletin board systems pre-World Wide Web. And it was so popular, thousands and thousands of people were downloading it. It was getting spread to all sorts of It was of just to listen to the dice rattle noise. Right, that dice rattle noise. You know exactly the version I'm talking about, right? And so it was such a popular version of Monopoly uh, he has, uh, he passed away, unfortunately. Um, I, I wrote the article about him posthumously. I had the chance to talk with him um, a couple times, a couple years before he passed. But he had so many fan letters. He had like hundreds and hundreds of fan letters piled up uh, from people that wrote in thanking him. Uh, he had one from Steve Martin who said like, yeah, we love playing it, you know, uh, between takes on set. Like we'll have a Monopoly game going. We'll we'll go back to the machine and play it and then go back and like do a take. The Parker Brothers actually sent them a, him a cease and desist so he had to stop releasing and making versions of it but by then i mean it's the internet you were you know it was out there the game was right. kind of to this day it's still a thing so yeah everything on the internet is forever everything on the internet is forever for now <laughs> very true <laughs> so getting back to video games we've seen a lot of advancements in gaming lately both in terms of hardware capabilities and innovative gameplay where do you think the future of games and game design is headed a lot of people answer this with vr i'm not I don't have the same feeling when it comes to VR and it's not for the reason you would think it's, it's more that in the same way that motion gaming was amazing and that the Wii was a super important system and it helped re-democratize the living room, you know, that it got your grandparents to play again in a way that you hadn't been able to for forever because everything past like the Atari or past the NES was just too intimidating. My grandmother was an unreal Tetris and Dr. Mario player, but she never touched anything past the NES she briefly had a PlayStation, but she didn't really play it much. And the Wii, she never had one, but I feel like the Wii is something that brought people back together. Virtual reality is really good at doing certain things. Uh, I think where it succeeds the most right now is anything that does not expect you to move. I went on a VR tour of Machu Picchu that was absolutely gorgeous. It was at Microsoft headquarters and put the headset on and it was beautiful. It was surreal. Um, it was a lot of fun to, to take that tour. I think where VR really is exciting and succeeds is things like witnessing locations or imagine buying courtside seats, right? Let's say your favorite team, I I don't know, I'm just going to say the Knicks, whatever, because, you know, courtside at Madison Square Garden, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say they can only seat 20,000 people in there. Okay, but what if they have the bandwidth and high enough resolution cameras 
that they can sell virtual courtside seats for $100 a pop and virtual seats for $25 a pop. You know, so once they sell out, maybe they get an additional 5,000, 10,000 people watching in VR and you get the sound of the, the experience of being there in your VR headset, the feeling of sitting, say, in the 200 section or the feeling of sitting courtside and being able to turn left and turn right and follow the action the way you want to follow it. And the experience of being there when you can't otherwise be there, you know, I'm thinking special events, sporting events, concerts, a lot of these experiences that right now are really hard for people to go to anyway, because waves arms outside the door, (laughs) you know, there's uh, an opportunity there and VR can fill a really wonderful space in the, the event genre. I was originally more excited for augmented reality when it came to gaming. And I think Pokemon Go was a a step in the direction of where games could go with that sort of uniting the, you know, real world space and and games. And I think mobile, just because the pervasiveness of mobile is still the biggest opportunity space to do more interesting things or different things. So I feel like the innovation statistically is more likely to come from there. Where am I more excited to see things? Because I think I do think the future of games and game design, for better or worse, uh, is going to be companies who make prestige projects on PC or on console that win awards or that are fun or popular for a segment of the population that are financed by mobile games, that are financed by elaborate Skinner boxes. Uh, I think right now the industry is kind of in a bad place where it's releasing some good stuff and it's releasing some really, really sinister stuff. And unfortunately, the sinister stuff is paying for everything else. Best Buy. Best Buy would have gone out of business 10 years ago if not for cell phones. Like every department in Best Buy is, is eating itself, like taking a loss except for Best Buy Mobile. Best Buy Mobile is floating Best Buy at this point. Cell phones are so expensive, so pervasive, so inundated in modern life that just statistically speaking, it's going to, it sucks, but that's where it's going to come from. Like the, the well, next thing that's going to come is going to come from that space. Well, and, and, you know, speaking of the Best Buy thing, like cell phones are also specifically iPhones and I'm an iPhone user, but like they're also status symbols. Like people who bought the iPhone 12 will go out next year and buy the iPhone 13 because it's the iPhone 13. So like it's thinking back to Pokemon Go too, I mean, that was nothing short of a phenomenon. I'll never forget the summer that Pokemon Go came out because I was... We achieved world peace that summer. It was... was, The calm before the the, storm. It was the (laughs) single thing, like, everybody was doing it. Like, I was one of the only people on Earth, I'm not a Pokemon fan, so I was one of the only people on Earth, I felt like, who wasn't just walking around at night. You're you're not alone. I, I saw it happening on campus, but I am just a little outside that generation. So the original Pokemon came out, what, North America, 97, 98? Something yeah, like that, yeah. Right. And so okay, whatever it was, I, I think I remember right around that time that it came out and I was interested in, I want to say Final Fantasy Tactics. And I just compared the two experiences. And one, as good as it might have been, portrayed itself so childishly, right? It was a Saturday morning cartoon. It was right. Um, it was something that really looked like it appealed to kids. And I was just slightly too old to want to do it. And I feel like if I'd been two years younger, three years younger, I would have been 100% on board. Well, even, I mean, the main character, like the the whole story of in the game was you turn 10 years old and you could go out in the world. And I feel like if you were skewing older, even having that be like the kind of beginning of the story for the game you would have been like oh this is i'm a little bit too old for this it's it's true how a game still 10 years old he's still 10 
well, aren't, we're all 10 in, in some way, shape, or form. It is, it, Pokemon's interesting that way because, pe- I mean, the two of the three hosts here are still huge Pokemon fans. You know, they've, theoretically, you would outgrow it at some point, right? But it's not, with, it doesn't work that way with Pokemon. No, nobody Clearly ever really work. outgrows their, like, there's a reason nostalgia is such a powerful tool. Like, no one ever really outgrows the things they love when they're kids. They just, there are times in your life where you put it on the shelf and there's times in your life where you dust it. And honestly, yeah. I mean, I think we're positioned in today's day and age Probably in previous generations, it was always like, oh, you hit a certain age and you had to shelve the childish stuff and you were kind of looked down upon and you needed to grow up. But I feel like we're in a very unique position in today's society where that kind of stuff is not frowned upon anymore. You know, like it's acceptable to continue to enjoy the things you enjoy and not feel bad about it. And I feel like that's kind of helped Pokemon's longevity. And especially in our case, like I, I have no qualms about playing the game and pretending like I'm 10 years old going on a mission again. Well, and it's also, yeah, I, I think Daniel said much earlier in the interview that like gaming culture is not counterculture anymore. And I think I think that like feeds into being a nerd is cool now. Like that's like, that's why we have this podcast. Like to to some extent, yeah, the right? losers because play sports. Ner- nerd <laughs> hey, culture hey, hey, is hey, now. I like sports too, though. <laughs> nerd culture is now like mainstream culture, and so I think yeah. that also feeds into what you're describing. Yeah, if I had my way, I would still be playing hockey twice a week. Okay. Well, let's talk about let's talk about root beer. So you identify as a root beer expert on your Twitter. Is there a story behind yeah. that? Um, I think it's a short one. Do you know the Epic of Gilgamesh? Yeah. The, okay. The name okay. rings of So <laughs> Gil- the very end of Gilgamesh, like Gilgamesh is check me out. I am the greatest human of all time. Now I want to be a god. And so he goes to the island of gods, and there's an old dude on the island of gods, and he's like, Hey, Gilgamesh, um, you want to be God? Cool. First thing you have to do is stay awake for a week. If you can stay awake for a week, we'll we'll go from there. Gilgamesh passes out a few days later and is like, well, I guess I have to settle for being the greatest human ever. Sails off the island the end. Kind of anticlimactic, admittedly. I, you know, I, I don't think it would have focus grouped well. Fast forward to the early 1990s. Uh, a young Daniel Greenberg and his friends acquire Secret of Mana and a multi-tap. At the same time, we have these things... Barks Root Beer is making its debut uh, as being uh, the Coca-Cola company has purchased Barks Root Beer. I'm instantly hooked. It's got caffeine. It's marketed as, you know, Barks has bite. So there I am, young, with my best friends, summer break at our house in the middle of the woods, middle of nowhere. You know, all you can do is just play around the house or play video games. And every day we'd play and every night we would wait for the parents to go to sleep. When they were asleep, we would sneak downstairs, fire up Secret of Mana with the multi-tap and play it straight to dawn, sneak back upstairs, quote unquote, go back to sleep. We kept doing this for days and days until we started acting kind of loopy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think uh, my stepdad caught on. I was like, oh my God, you guys are going to kill yourself. Go to bed. (laughs) But... I do think, and I, I'd have to, I don't know, you know, maybe when I die and whatever afterlife awaits me, they'll let me go back and check the tape to see if, if, if I did or not. I think we outlasted Gilgamesh. I'm not positive we went to a week because I've read studies that say if you actually stay up like a week straight, you start to have like some serious hallucinations and other problems and it does like permanent damage. And I'd like to think that I'm not that addled. <laughs> uh, so I don't know that we necessarily stayed up a week, but I know we stayed up definitely longer than, than Gilgamesh did. And Thanks so Mark's root beer. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, root beer is one of those things that I kind of attached to and I enjoyed, uh, and I've enjoyed drinking for, for decades. Some of it is I enjoy when people like things and people study things and people get into things. 
you have Cicerones for beer. You have sommeliers for wine. Um, you don't really have a cool word for a root beer expert. So I kind of have to go with the, the verbose version of it. Also, I don't drink. Uh, just speaking on like a personal level, uh, I have had multiple family members go through like very challenging experiences with alcohol. So I know like I've got a genetic disposition to it. So I try to avoid it. Um, I'm also not just really not a fan of drinking it. So, you know, you kind of had to, what's my parallel? What's the the drink that I'm going to get invested in and, and learn more about and study? And there's something so quintessentially American about root beer. You know, it's history first being sold in the uh, 1876 centennial in Philadelphia by Charles Hires. And 100 years later in 1976, Sassafras, uh, the FDA determines that that's carcinogenic and you can't use it anymore. And and all of the different brands that have come and gone and, and root beer's place in drinks as sort of this, you know, granddaddy of pops or sodas, depending on where you live and, you know, how it's been perceived over the years. It's it's just something I enjoy. By the way, the term for a root beer aficionado should be a sassafrasian, in my opinion. It's not bad. It's not bad. We can workshop it. It's not bad. It's a good start. <laughs> so what's your favorite brand of root beer right now? Oh, this day? um... So if I just have to go to the store and grab something, it's still a Barks. And and this is one of the key things about root beer is one of the first kind of diversions, branches that root beer has is it's either trying to be sweet or it's trying to be spicy. A sweet root beer is something that's going to lean on like honey, vanilla, mint. Um, these are your A and W's. Delicious, but it's a dessert root beer. Mm-hmm. Barks goes the other direction. Uh, it has a, a spice blend. It, it, the caffeine helps a little bit. Uh, the carbonation helps a little bit. Uh, but it's trying to be a spicy root beer. I was on a actually another podcast, actually. I'm going to plug somebody else's podcast here, uh, PD's Power Hour. Uh, she and I talked about root beer for a long time. And we had a couple root beers because her show is all about different drinks. I think we had Main Root, which is definitely sort of like a, a spicy root beer, and Hanks, which is very much like drinking a cookie. And root beer can vary so wildly in that respect. I'm curious your There's opinion lots of Dr. Pepper. Just as a I, I like Dr. Pepper. I think Dr. Pepper is perfectly good. I, I will find myself on a regular basis. I have a basement fridge and we call the basement fridge Bessie. Um, <laughs> the Bessie has been named as such because when I was a kid, we always had extra milk in the basement fridge. That's why it got named Bessie, right? You go down to, to Bessie and get some milk. However, as I took over more and more of the buying decisions as I became an adult, as it became my own house and my own Bessie in the basement, uh, it became an opportunity to basically have a soda machine in the house. I go down there and there's like a dozen different things. It's very common for me to have root beer, Dr. Pepper, some cola, some cherry cola, you know, just a, a variety of options. No, I think Dr. Pepper's delicious. I, I know it's it's got sort of that Texas Southern thing going for it. And there's always sort of that Coke-Dr. Pepper rivalry in the in the, the Deep South. But I think it's perfectly good. It's it's its own thing. It's it's not really root beer. It's, you know, it's 23 flavors. 22 of them are prune, but it's still good. <laughs> so this is a kind of final question, something that we usually ask all of the guests on our show. And outside of, you know, the ability to go almost a week without sleep, if you were a real life superhero, what power would you want to have? Oh, gosh. You know, just speaking, I guess in terms of what's going to do the least damage to the world around me. Because so many superpowers, the problem is always the destabilizing nature of it, right? What, is, what does it mean 
to the world to see somebody fly? What does it mean to the world to see someone who is invulnerable or super strong or all those things, right? It's, you think about sort of the big geopolitical consequences of those things. And, you know, what superpower can you have that will like make your life better or make other people's lives better without necessarily destabilizing the planet? Mm -hmm. I've always been a fan of like, precognition, precognition, the people that like just have a little bit of a can kind of see what's just a little bit ahead. What was it morning edition where the guy gets the paper and it's tomorrow's news. So he can just do he's still a person he can just do something to help it. Because um, he has an inkling of what's going to happen. But you know what he's doing isn't necessarily gonna, you know, turn the world upside down. Cassandra, you know, going back to, you know, Helen and Cassandra, you know, the ability to see the future, but nobody believes you necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's something cool to having that short-term cognitive ability. I think it would be fun to, you know, in some ways, I it, it's got to be select. I guess the super part of the superpower is being able to pick what I do and don't see the future of. I would hate to like sit down to a Caps game and already know how it's going to end. Yeah, that would kind of um, ruin right. sports. Right, sure. yeah. There's there's certain things it would, it would absolutely ruin, but I think it would be great to like, am I going to, if I go to the store, are they going to have what I want? You know, go to the grocery store. Are they, they going to have the root beer I want? Oh, they're not going to have it. They're out. So okay. you're talking seeing like parallel paths? Yeah. Like, like yeah, if yeah, you do this, I, this is going to happen. This, this, exactly. This, this. Give, give me the short-term, simple, like game facts version of things, right? Okay, well, maybe I should... Um, no, I'll, I, so the weather says it's going to be blustery, but it's actually going to be nice this afternoon, despite what the weather report says. So I'm going to plan to take a walk this afternoon. You'll be a very quick millionaire with your, if I pick this circle, then this is going to happen. <laughs> I mean, it could. Yeah, there's. I guess there's always the risk of the corruption that comes from from future sight, right? I would like to think my better angels would take, you know, hold there, but you never know. But then you'll donate it to charity. That's what they all tell themselves. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I am scared so much. I, I I was telling my family this. If I ever won the lottery, I don't think I'd ever tell anyone. And yeah, I'd be very careful about what states I play the lottery in because there are certain states that you can win anonymously. You can claim your winnings without them announcing that you won. Uh, I don't think I'd ever want anyone knowing I won the lottery. I would hate to see what that would uh, do to my personal and like friend relationship. Right? You imagine just how bad that could get. You always hear stories about that too. People win the lottery and like their lives are ruined. <laughs> and yeah, I think the 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 part of me that, you know, wants slash needs money is like, no way. If I won the lottery, everything would be good. But like there's just so many documented cases of that that yeah, I I, I I'm inclined to agree with you that winning anonymously is almost certainly Better. I, I just yep, don't I know how my just... favorite hobbies would make me go broke or something, just because I don't know how you blow all your money in sweatpants and Netflix. It's not you. It's not you. It's everyone else. That's, right. It's, it's, that's the thing. People will come to you and they know you have a certain amount of money. So then it influences their behavior towards you, et cetera. I, I think, I think that's what, what it is. Just give but. me a slightly colder root beer, a slightly nicer TV and a few more minutes a day to enjoy the thing I love. Yeah. Just kind of like, well, it gives you, I think the power to enjoy the good things in life. If you can just keep it under wraps. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us here. Obviously, a lot of insight was bestowed upon us and our listeners. So uh, we thank you. Anything else you want to let our listeners know about? Plug, parting thoughts? Yeah, uh, sure. Yours. Uh, so I'm always happy to, to get into these discussions. Um, I love doing it. I'm a teacher. That's kind of what we do. You mentioned Twitter. You can always find me online at Winter Ion. 
Our show, Ion Gaming, is on YouTube at watch.winterion.com. If you are interested in learning how to make games, George Mason University is located in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, You can learn more about us at gmu.edu. And finally, uh, the holiday season is kind of coming up here. So just want to wish everyone a terrific end of 2021 and hopefully a much better 2022. I mean, it has to be right like at this point the arrow's got to point up at some point i don't know i don't have the superpower right that's true okay yeah well thanks again daniel uh we are going to take a short break now and and return with our regularly scheduled programming but yeah daniel thanks again and uh i'll talk to everybody else in a minute okay we are back thanks again to daniel greenberg for sitting down and chatting with us for a while and we now return you to your regularly scheduled online warrior ing I mean, you just heard all of his talks so i don't know if we need to reintroduce ourselves but just in case if you forgot i am illegal 86 one of your three hosts joined as ever by nerd bomber and tactic who sound really good today hi we were just talking about hello this. hello we slept in today we did some of those I mean, what are those like voice actor things that they do to warm up like that. well yeah there's like there's there's all kinds of stuff <laughs> having been a chorus boy myself Vocal fries. There's, there's all kinds of things you can do. But you guys did all of them because you sound uh, rich and deep and just deep. just good. Yeah, that was good. That was good, too, even though it was a little weird. It sounded <laughs> right. So we have uh, post-interview, we have our usual slate of news topics to get into. We're going to be talking about Splinter Cell today. And we are also going to be talking about TikTok. So with TikTok stuff, maybe I, I guess are we skewing? Look, we're all millennials, but... Is that Gen Z? Is that Zennial? Are Gen Z and Zennial the same thing? Also? We can call them Am Tic Tacs to make it all right with the world again. I think you're right, though. Yeah, I think, think it is like Gen Z oriented, which we are not. But sometimes right. we pretend and we are. Might even be Gen Alpha. It, that's a thing? Is, yeah, it's after Z. Yeah, it is. I thought Zennial. Where is Zennial? And what is a Zennial? It's that, a youth millennial. I thought, isn't Zennial Gen X slash millennial? Isn't it like, like that weird bridge point between the two generations i might be wrong no it's a it's a youth millennial it's, it's between z and millennial it's kind of that overlap yeah. why x, would you bring x between, into this jeez between gen x and and millennials there's just a dead zone it's just they don't they don't call those people anything yeah I, do you think tic tacs are do you think tic tac the brand has is like upset with TikTok becoming popular no but like, i bet oh, do you kesha think- is and I'm, I'm actually really disappointed oh, yeah. that TikTok has never used Kesha's song as like an advertising gimmick at all. Maybe they did back in the day, but they definitely haven't lately. And they should have. Because it's literally, it's the same spelling. Like oh, it's yeah. not even just, like they, she took the C's out and TikTok was like, all right, we'll just steal that. It is weird. Uh, you would think there would be some kind of copyright deal there. And it, incidentally, isn't Kesha one of those artists who like signed a bad record deal or something and like they lost all their money or something? Or am I, uh, am I, it was more that. i'm trying to remember because it was a while ago she signed a bad record deal with a bad dude who oh right did I bad things now. i don't remember yeah. the specifics i just remember it was bad and then she, she escaped uh, yeah. and now has artistic freedom i believe well she is she still is that still going on I'm curious. i mean she dropped off the map for a while understandably I don't, is she back she's been back yeah for a couple of years she, i think she released a new album without any ties to that producer or whoever she was working with well uh why don't we why don't we talk about tiktok why don't we lead off with this topic because this is interesting to me even though i am a millennial i still i think we all are to some extent on tiktok now i don't have a tiktok but like my fiance sends me tiktoks all the time you guys both send me tiktoks pretty frequently and uh i'm just i just i live in society so i 
I'm aware of TikTok and TikTok is a pretty constant fixture just in, in our lives. But uh, are they a constant fixture in our kitchens? I like that side. I would say no. I am immersed in food talk. Of the three of us, Yeah, you would all assume that it was me. And survey says yes. Yeah, actually, it's really interesting because TikTok is obviously run on an algorithm. I think the algorithm is very well known or at least talked about at this point where within a matter of hours of being on TikTok, your account and your For You page is really honed into your interests and what yeah. you like. Basically, if you watch a specific type of video, the rest of your For You page will be tailored to those type of videos. One of the the big examples, I believe it was called Couch Boy, and it was a video of this girl going to visit her boyfriend at college or whatever, and he like barely got off the couch when she walked in the door. But if you just like watch that one video, suddenly your entire For You page was just everything about Couch Boy. And so that just happened to me. Couches. Like I didn't even like the video, but like then my entire feed was videos about it. And meanwhile, Tectic's over there still watching like baking and cooking videos and had no idea what I was even talking about. Which incidentally, you know, we talked about TikTok maybe being mad. Tectic, are you mad at TikTok? I mean, an- another sound alike there. I have, you I have a lawsuit out? in progress. We're going to get them. We're going to get them. It's on. Which means, <laughs> which means we're probably not allowed to talk about it. Hashtag this is a joke. <laughs> I, right, yeah. I've mentioned the Online Warriors legal team before on the podcast. It's not real, guys. We don't have one. If we screw up legally, that's just, it's the ballgame. It's over for us. So, I don't know. Keep your fingers crossed. Technic, I, w- I would guess, and I think you said, like, most of the listeners, I'm sure, would guess that you're the food talk guy. So, I, so okay, the, the, the article itself, the new, we're going to finally get to the piece of news here. TikTok is opening uh, restaurants, but they're like takeout only restaurants delivery only i should say delivery only tiktok kitchen branded restaurants across the united states starting next year because you know food talk is a big deal on tiktok now i don't watch a lot of food i've watched like a handful of food talk videos are you familiar with this baked feta tiktok yeah, yeah it's or like a tech- air fried uh, they air fry the pasta to make like a crunchy snack basically it sounds like a very big deal i mean there's there's a number of examples given in this article smash burger corn ribs which i don't what is a corn rib like i just don't even know what that is and then yeah pasta chips i think is actually what, what you were just talking about baked feta pasta i think it, it sounds more like just like a baked ziti but there's feta in it which again sounds really good this is a pretty cool thing what i did not realize and kind of a bit of an offshoot but actually just yesterday i saw my brother and he was eating uh mr beast burger did you guys know about mr beast burger yeah because it's a I, it's a mediocre burger honestly okay, yeah I, I wouldn't know i didn't try any of it I, I like saw it but i didn't really inspect it but that's i guess kind of a, a similar thing there's this kind of sounds like umbrella company virtual dining concepts which is a very futuristic name for a company founded in 2018 has a number of notable people involved in it uh, mr beast i just mentioned guy fieri steve harvey mariah carey taiga they have a partnership with barstool sports and they do these delivery only they're called ghost restaurants which is also a very cool thing i don't know i mean i actually don't i don't use like grubhub very much i'm not like a big grubhubber or a door dasher or anything but that's mostly because you hear so many bad things about both of those companies <laughs> like and you hear that like the drivers are when you when you tip isn't it such that like when you tip DoorDash, like the drivers don't actually get it or something, something weird happens. So I always feel bad doing that. But if this is going to accomplish something similar, while maybe not being as shady, I don't know. I'm, I'm into it. I'll, I'll entertain the thought of watching a TikTok video and presumably you'll see a food talk video and they'll say, you know, do you want this? Click this button. There's a, there's a, there's a so, TikTok kitchen near you. 
here's here's my stance on it. And th- this might be just because I'm merely pa- a passionate person in the kitchen. When I see all these food TikTok trends, what I think of is it's people encouraging people that you can have super delicious, easy things that you can make in the kitchen and, and do yourself. And that's sort of what I always felt that it was intended to be for. And now you add <laughs> right, you add this right. option, and it just it kind of ruins it for me. I don't really. I don't really like it. it. It's supposed to be these fun, easy tricks. The pasta chips, for example, are like the easiest thing in the world to make. Just like do it. Stop ordering stuff, okay, folks. So hear me out, though. I suck at cooking. And the only reason we eat a well-balanced meal in this house is because you're very good at cooking. So for me, part of the reason why every time you send me a cooking no, TikTok, see- you send me them and I'm just like, this looks like something I would never do in my life. Looks delicious. Would never do that. You don't suck at cooking. You don't feel like cooking. There's a no. I suck when it comes to doing things that are unique and off script that aren't very simple. Like, yeah, I can put things in the oven if I have easy directions to follow and I don't have to like monitor things. Right, but that's what TikTok is. No, but half giving you a script to follow. No, half the things on TikTok though, it's just like, oh, and monitor this for like ten to fifteen minutes. No, I need to like put it in the oven for ten minutes and not look at it and know it's going to come out okay. If I have to do any sort of monitoring, that's where it all goes to crap. I disagree. It, it shows you very clearly. It says, set the air fryer to this temperature for this long, bing, bang, boom, done. Well, all I'm saying, though, is like, and sometimes with these with these recipes and stuff that people have on TikTok, like, especially since we're only two people, or I imagine if you're living alone, buying the ingredients for one person to eat a dish, like, that's just not... No one wants to do that. It's very difficult. If you look at like statistics that I'm sure exist and I'm just talking on my ass and making these up, but I'm sure like single people aren't going to buy all of the ingredients to make a really nice like home cooked unique meal. You know what I mean? I just I don't right. see that happening. But these so are common being, ingredients. A lot of these ones. Not always though. Well, like I don't well, have it, feta it, just chilling in my house. Well, you need yeah, it, it it depends on what what the recipe is i technically i totally hear what you're saying and i think that's a really good point but you know i think you could extend that concept to anything right it's like why do you ever order food because you don't want to cook it like it's it's one thing to see someone do it on tiktok and be like oh it looks pretty easy and it's another thing to actually do it and, yeah, like you know, have you guys I, ever gotten a recipe whether it's online or on tiktok or youtube or whatever and you're like oh this looks really easy but then you get like elbows yeah. deep and it turns out it's not it's not easy at all. Let me, get, let me tell you guys a fun before. fact about Nerd Bomber. She will cook a sure. fantastic meal so long as it can 100% be done in the microwave. This is true. This is very true. And so... I mean, there's no shame in that. It's a great invention, the microwave. For those strange people who don't have a tactic around to stop that nonsense, sure, this is a great idea. But if I'm going to be ordering out, I'm not going to be ordering these you know, gimmicky things and here's the other thing why i'm against it is basically it's a restaurant that makes meals off of trends which basically is saying it's a restaurant that's trusting the internet to pick their well, menu right and i think that it, can make for some hilarious antics i mean though i don't know i feel like people generally speaking you're gonna have somebody curating these things so they're not gonna just look at whatever the trending video is and be like if it's like dog poop on bread they're not gonna be like oh this is great let's make this you know i want mean? to see the Bodie mcboat face of the food world well i i think in as much as we're talking about these things like the big fat of pasta and the pasta chips and stuff i think it what could be cool what, what could be a future direction for this sort of thing is okay i'm gonna watch a tiktok of a chef 
making a really high quality steak. And the process is going to be very transparent. You're going to see everything that he does. But again, you're still, maybe you don't have the skill to do it yourself. Maybe you don't have the, the, the means. So you order it. Like it, it is one thing to talk about like, oh, you, you know, throw a pasta in the air fryer and it turns into chips. Like you're right. That's, that's pretty straightforward. It, it, that shouldn't be the kind of thing you order for delivery probably. But like, you know, a smash burger that's done in a specific way. Sure. Uh, to me, that seems like perfectly fair game for this sort of thing. I think this is going to be huge. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I do think this is going to be successful. I think the cool thing too is that not only is this benefiting TikTok, I think in the article it said that they're viewing this more as like an advertising thing, but they're partnering and they're going to be crediting and you know Creative. giving back to the creators who are making this food. So now imagine this could be like a cooking show. So like your top chefs or whatever of the world. I feel like those on TV appeal to a very specific set of people, people who maybe have the food network. This could potentially elevate some random TikToker who loves to cook and have a career kind of be created out of yeah. this entire initiative because, you know, they create so many cool recipes that it, they become trending and then they get a deal with TikTok to have their recipe featured. And then suddenly they can write a cookbook or something or it makes their YouTube or TikTok go off the hook and suddenly they have millions of views and they can throw their passion and their career more in the cooking side and maybe it won't be a side gig or anything anymore. I don't know. I think it's really a neat idea. With that said, you know, I something that I'm immediately wary of, you know, what, what was I talking about before with DoorDash and Grubhub and these companies that they're kind of out to screw people, like how TikTok compensates creators, you know, relative to these TikTok kitchen things, I think is is critical to its success because Again, it's all about transparency. And if, you know, if a TikTok creator gets screwed on this deal, what are they going to do? They're going to go tell people about it on TikTok. So like it's, it, you know, it's it's much more of a of a two-way street, I think, where everyone has to be above board. Everyone has to play by the rules. And like you said, it, it's a really cool thing in that sense. And that if it does go that way, you can start people's careers who love cooking. You know, Tactic, you could do this. Yeah, we could see a Tactic TikTok. I'm trying to think of something to that goes with food but i i lost it tactic tinkers in the kitchen tiktok i've got a couple Tinkering. of recipes it's my red potato Tinkering. potato salad my uh pasta dish with bacon and come up with something viral tactic let's do this right i mean that would also be be good for the podcast too so i fully endorse that i think this is a cool idea i don't think this article has any provides any indication on when exactly this is going to be happening it's just next year i think is kind of the basic idea oh it, looks, oh it looks like march march of next year so i don't know just in time for easter what happens in march i think i think easter's in march next year who knows yeah uh we'll be checking back in on this you know for all we know like you said tactic there's there's high probability of antics of some kind so maybe in three months we'll be back to talking about this and saying like look what this look what happened to this is terrible or stupid but i don't know i have high hopes for it so we will see let's pivot as we often do and let's talk about splinter cell so I think I've talked on the podcast before about Splinter Cell, which is weird because I don't I don't have a lot of Splinter Cell experience. I haven't played much of it. I believe we had, I think it was Pandora Tomorrow for the Xbox. And I played it on the Xbox 360 because it was backwards compatible, I think is what happened. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I say played it, what I mean is I tried to play it. I can't like, it's only been very recently that I have found, stumbled upon the skills required to play stealth games and with games like dishonored and stuff and even the uncharted games feature stealth elements to a certain extent like 
uh, The Last of Us is another one. Like, there's a lot of games that feature stealth elements, but maybe not to the extent of Splinter Cell. And Splinter Cell, maybe just at the time I played it, or because of what it, what it specifically is, I could never do it. Like, I was always just terrible at it, but I loved the idea of it. And I still love the idea of it. What is your guys' Splinter Cell experience? Have you played through any of the games? I haven't. I know we have like a 3DS game, I believe Tactic has, and I've never played that either, which is weird because I really do actually enjoy stealth games. But I am excited about this. So I didn't realize, I guess just because, you know, Splinter Cell, I feel like has been a staple in gaming, but I didn't realize I was reading the developer interview when they kind of announced this game. And apparently they missed the entire last gaming generation. Like we haven't had a true Splinter Cell entry into the franchise in a very long time. So it'll yeah, be really neat to see this come back as a whole, because I think it is very unique in terms of stealth games. A lot of stealth games, you can still kill people and make a mess out of everything. But I think the true foundation of Splinter Cell is you're supposed to be completely invisible. Like nobody knows that you were even there, which is obviously that would probably mean you try not to kill people or make a mess or anything like that, or you failed a mission. I feel like now that we're adults and have a little bit more patience, it would be fun. Right. And, well, and in Splinter Cell, like you can still kill people. But yeah, I think the, the penalty for doing that is even steeper than it is in a game like Dishonored, where there is a very clear penalty. But with Splinter Cell, it's like it's it's an inch away from just you can't do it at all, I feel like. So this is Ubisoft Toronto it has greenlit. And I, I want to be clear because they're very clear about it. A remake, not a remaster. So this is going to be building splinter cell from the ground up whether that still includes sam fisher or a new character i guess remains to be seen but again i just i like i'm invested in this if only because i think yeah since i played the last one that i played i may have gained the skill set to actually play these games successfully and i just love the idea like when i was a kid i was all about like spy stuff you know that was like kind of my thing like i had a little listening device and a motion detector and well that's because we were we were from the spy kids generation and i had all those things I had all of those same things too. I remember, right. did you guys have like the the bedroom door alarm thing and it would yeah. trip if anyone walked into your room and then my mom would be like, yes. I'm putting your laundry away. What are you doing? Why are you alarming on me? You know? And you were like, and you were like, I caught you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was, I think there was literally a brand, the brand might still exist for all I know, but it was like literally called like Spy Gear. And it just was like all these little things. Cause yeah, like you said, Tactic, we were part of the Spy Gears generation and that was like a huge deal. At least to me, it was like a like 10-year-old me was super into that whole thing. So Splinter Cell, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, man, this looks so cool. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a ghost. It's going to be awesome. And then, like, I would be walking down a hallway in the game and I would, my, my baby toe would, like, brush up a glass bottle and I would die. Like, it, it's it's very challenging from what I remember. I think I think the learning curve is pretty steep. So I'd be curious to see if the barrier to entry is lower for this remake and also, you know, just how they go about. Like, yeah, like I said, do they recycle characters or do they just start from the ground up? I think from what the developers were saying, because Ubisoft posted a little interview with them, they were saying that one of the things like they were using like the future of stealth or whatever as like their guiding compass, but it's basically going to be a ground up remake. It's not so much a remaster. So they're basically trying to take the original games, keep the spirit of them, but drag the entire thing into the 21st century slash next gen console yeah Yeah. this is really exciting for me especially coming off a death loop right i mean i I was talking to nerd bomber and i started off that game running and gunning and she was she was like if if this was real life would you and and would you ever do any of this and i was like oh no (laughs) 
Well, I mean, with Deathloop, you can play however you want to play. But stealthy, especially in the beginning, before you really have any powers, abilities, weapons, I think stealth is the way to go. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Yes. Stealth redefined is, I think, the like buzz phrase that Ubisoft Toronto is using. They Now, they did uh, And that's why Cell. I'm giving accolades to Nerd Bomber, by the way, because that's that's what that game, that Splinter Cell series sort of thrives behind is if this was real... How would you approach this? Splinter Cell, I think the last one was Splinter Cell Blacklist, I think is what it was called. And that, you know, I think that came out like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. I believe I was in college when that came out. So it's it's been a minute. And it's a franchise that, yeah, I think should always be around. So it, it, it makes perfect sense. You know, Ubisoft's got a lot going on right now. They're also working a new Star Wars game. Avatar Frontiers of Pandora, also kind of in the hopper for them as well. So 2022 could be a big year for them. And yeah, it's very exciting. So we'll be looking in on that. Obviously, this is so in the early going that it's, you know, we don't have a release date or anything for it. But it's good to know that it's in the hopper. Hopefully, I'll be better at, at Splinter Cell this time around. So that brings us, well, it brings us somewhat close to our usual ad break. But before we go into the ad break, I would be remiss if I did not shout out our fantastic Patreon producer, Mr. Stephen Keller. Stephen, here's to you. Once again, we made it all the way through 2021, and 2021 was it was a better year because we had your support. Steven supports us at the highest of our three levels of support on Patreon. He is a night-level subscriber, which gets him this producer shout-out every week. It gets him input into the weekly game segment, which... Who is hosting that this week? Hopefully it's not me. It is me. Yeah, Tactic 1, okay. even though he's the overall loser. That's right. We still have to come up with a punishment. So, yeah, producer shout-out, input into the weekly game segment. Of course, access to the monthly secret segment and vlog, and the occasional guest spot. Steven's been on the show now, I think, four times something like that so if you want to be like steven you can support us at our night level but there's also a squire level of support which gets you access to the monthly secret segment and vlog and then the page level gets you access to the monthly secret segment and all of these levels are found on patreon patreon.com slash online warriors podcast go there check out the deets and yeah uh, we'd love to have your support we'd love to to talk to some more of you on the show and yeah go check it out there thanks again to steven we'll take a short break now to shout out a sponsor and we will be right back We are knee-deep in the holiday season, of course. It's it's going to be Christmas in, well, a few days now. And uh, one of the common things uh, that comes about in the holiday season for a lot of people is, is stress and maybe even depression. You know, BetterHelp is here to help. So if you have something preventing you from achieving your goals, interfering with your happiness, you can check out BetterHelp.com slash listener for more information about what, about what BetterHelp can do for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. It's being done securely online. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. They're currently hiring, recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So they're expanding and growing, clearly running a very successful service. Uh, they have professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief and self-esteem issues. And anything you share is confidential. It's professional, it's convenient, it's affordable, and it's available for clients worldwide. If you want to get more information, you can go to betterhelp.com slash listener and you'll get 10% off your first month. You can join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's betterhelp at help.com slash listener. Thanks to BetterHelp for helping sponsor this episode. And now we'll get back to the episode.
Okay, welcome back. Uh, we are going to cut now to what we have been up to. It is time for What Are You Up To Wednesday, where we talk about what we've been up to. I know Nerd Bomber is very excited. Look, sometimes you get a Discord message from Nerd Bomber, and her excitement is just it's just pouring out. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just you can feel so much exuberance. And so I know she's been chomping at the bit to talk about this. So Nerd Bomber, why don't you go ahead and lead us off here? Well, anytime I send a message that says I ducking love something, we know I didn't mean ducking. She did say that. And yeah. it auto-corrected. So I'm sure that's a good tip off that I'm really excited about something. But Ron's gone wrong. So this is an animated, it was like a Fox 20th century movie, but Disney bought them. So it premiered this weekend. It was in movie theaters, I think back in either August or October. And it kind of, it didn't get a lot of fanfare. You know, the the trailer kind of quietly came out. And then I didn't really see anything about this movie until this weekend when I got the notification that it was on Disney Plus and HBO Max. It is heckin' adorable guys so the premise of the movie is that you know there's this kid he's in middle school and he doesn't have a lot of friends you know i would say he has no friends he has kids that he knew from elementary school but basically no friends that he talks to day in and day out and there is this new device that is reminiscent of a smartphone but it's this little personal robot that will follow kids around it lets them communicate with each other they can play games with each other it helps them find friends and the entire point of this robot was that it's supposed to help kids make connections and find friends well the main character you know his his family isn't as well off so they can't afford to get him one so he feels even more ostracized then his birthday comes around and his dad and grandma buy one kind of in a dark alley and it's a broken robot and so this broken robot who is named ron hence the title ron's gone wrong can't connect to the internet can't do any of the things that the other kids robots can do and initially you know the main character is very upset because you know his robot sounds this sounds sad well his no there's a moral to the story can't connect to other kids and it's kind of like weird and act strange but then he starts to realize that you know just because he can't connect to the internet or anything and and be connected doesn't mean that he can't have fun so he starts to teach this robot how to be his friend because the the robot's product tagline is best friend out of the box so this robot has ai and starts to learn about him and they become actual friends and instead of you know being obsessed with what's going on on the connected interwebs of the robot network they just they go off and have fun in the real world and it is adorable the message is basically you know if you step away from your online connections and just take a look at the real world connections and world happening around you you know you'll you'll find more meaningful connections with real people instead of just looking for blanket likes and whatnot But Ron is so cute, and I loved it. This was such a great movie. I don't know if I had high expectations, but it was just adorable. I you say the it. lesson was that you should try to make real meaningful connections and not the superficial connections online. I mean, I, not that online connections are superficial, but they were kind of comparing it to, you know, just trying to get, you know, anonymous likes and that don't mean anything, you I know? Think, I right. think the real connection, the real story of this movie was you should always buy your technology from dark alleys. Always. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you, when also you, you can't sell short online connection. I mean, Nirvana, I don't know if anyone told you, our podcast is called Online Warriors. Well, no, that, so, it's not so much. I think the message wasn't that you can't have real connections with 
people online, but more so just like the superficial looking for likes that don't mean anything. It's more about making connections with people and friends and not just looking for the number and quantity of likes, but more so the quality of the connection, I guess is the proper way to phrase the lesson, in my opinion. Well, so where can this be streamed? Because I need to know where I t- where to not watch it because you suggested it to me so I can never watch it. It is on HBO Max and uh, Disney Plus. So you have options. Well, there you go. So is this, is this you might have mentioned, is this a Pixar property? No, it's a, a Fox. Am I going to cry? Uh, You might cry. I was a little emotional at some points. There was a emotional roller coaster. I was upset. Like I said, it just sounds sad to me. But, but it wasn't. Uh, like it kind of is, but then it's not. Like it's a feel good movie at the end of the day. Right. It's the good kind of sad. It's like, it sounds like Pixar. I know you said it's not, but cool. Is there anything else to update us on? Uh, I started reading the boys comic books and I don't know. I'm not digging it. That that's really all I have to say. It's not as good as the show, and meh. Still haven't gotten around to watching the show. I know it's I know that's a thing, but I don't know. I'm a busy guy. You'll see when I go. Uh, in fact, why don't I go? I'm not that busy. I'm not that busy. But I did see West Side Story, the new one, and I want to I want to give a PSA to people. And some would argue this is a spoiler, but West Side Story. I did not know this going in. I was literally going into... I have not seen the original. I haven't read the play or whatever. I have a vague sense of the music. But going in, I was with some people and I was like, so what is the deal with this? And someone said, it's basically Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, oh, okay. So just it's going to be a love story that's different than Romeo and Juliet. I'll, I'll see what it's about. No, they ripped off Shakespeare. Like, I want to I wanna like kind of stump for Shakespeare here. I feel like he got a raw deal. In no way do I associate the two... The, like West Side Story with Romeo and Juliet, but... It's just a ripoff of Romeo and Juliet. And I, I mean, want people to know that. Aren't a lot it, of movies ripoffs of Romeo and Juliet, though? Like, not, Shakespeare not has rip, been ripped off so many times. The Lion King is a Shakespeare ripoff. Sure, but that's like, it's a little bit more subtle. Like, this is literally just like, they're like, they're like we're just literally going to do Romeo and Juliet. Like, that's basically what it is. I just thought that was very interesting. Uh, it was It was a good movie. It was like, it's very visually interesting. It's Steven Spielberg, so you're going to get a high-quality product. The music is honestly fascinating. If you're a musical person, it's not... Like, I had just recently watched Dear Evan Hansen, which I think I talked about last week. And the music of Dear Evan Hansen is great, but it's very... It's predictable, and it's musical music. So it follows certain beats that you can just based... If you've seen any musicals, you have a sense of what, what it's doing. West Side Story is not that way at all. Like, you'll think the music is going one way, and it will go a completely different direction. I think just for kind of the shock value in that. But it makes it very watchable. So I thought that was pretty good. Other than that, you know, still playing Spider-Man, Miles Morales. Uh, I think I told the two of you, had my first PS5 scare when I was playing Spider-Man. I literally just started playing Spider-Man, Miles Morales. was really getting into it. I'd been playing for like half an hour. And the power in my house went out. So and I, I, I... Was I, it all I okay? On the podcast. Everything was fine. But didn't we talk about on the podcast, like when the PS5 first came out, there was like this thing with power outages where like... Or did it happen to you or something? When it happened, I was like, oh gosh, did I break my PS5 by like playing it and then the power went out it was a big thing i'm not sure about the ps5 but it was a big thing with the playstation 4 where every time the power went out it gave you that scary warning screen when you oh, turned yeah. it back on that was like don't yeah. do that again you're gonna brick your console but not the ps5 voice or anything it, it gave a very similar warning when i turned it back it on it's like you it was like you idiot <laughs> and i was like like, like i did it like they're like you can't turn it off that way stupid <laughs> 
Like, don't unplug it. Just turn the power off. Like, it, it is, it's like, it's a very harshly, it's like scary and harsh, the messaging. But everything was fine. Everything's good. Loving the PS5. I don't know. There's not much more, like, kind of like you, what you were saying about the boys' comic books. There's, I don't have any, any more to say about it. It's just, it's great. I'm enjoying that. Uh, I'm not going to be playing for a little while. I'm fully in Christmas mode. I'm actually going to be spending a, a few days. Actually, I'm recording from my parents' house. So if you, if you hear a different quality in the air, because that's where I am, I'm not in my usual place. So Christmas is coming up. More holiday stuff to come. Tech let's talk holiday stuff what's what's been going on in your life christmas wise so as you guys know from all of my random plugs to my tinkering with tactics there's a lot of things that i say hey get excited for this and either you'll never see it in my content or it'll take a very long time to come to fruition and that's because honestly the most exciting part about any of my little side projects is the learning phase i just I love learning something new. I love understanding and teaching myself why it works that way and, and what the science behind that is and, and how the, the electronics are, are performing my task. And it and it's just, it really, really excites me. And so something that I've been super excited about lately is how do drones work? How can I make a drone autonomous and things like that or or have it take pictures and, and what have you? And so Nerd Bomber actually let me open up a early Christmas present. Well, it was more so he was like, I might buy this book or look, I found this really great instructional. And I was like, shoot, it's under the tree. <laughs> and so she bought me she bought me that exact book. And, and the book's called Build Your Own Drone Manual by Alex Elliott. And so far, so good. It gives a, gives a really nice history of drones, you know, when, when the first ones were created. Then it goes into part selection and, and calculating your thrust for your weight and things like that. And it's it's really well written. And I'm, and I'm just enjoying reading through it because ultimately, maybe you guys will see a how to build your own drone video. And I'm going to say maybe because who knows what I'm going to move on to next because it's just, I love learning things. I just, I'm excited about this book. I'm excited to learn about drones and uh, we'll see where it takes me. So that's what I'm working on. Keep us updated or don't if you stop doing it. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to make promises on your behalf because it sounds like you're going out of your way to avoid making promises. I think that's smart. Very cool. Very cool. Early Christmas presents are always fun. I haven't gotten any early Christmas presents. I have to give you guys your Christmas presents. We got to figure out how we're doing that. Yeah, we have your you know, Christmas presents too. Fun fact, we're friends drone outside of this em. podcast and we give each other Christmas gifts. That is a fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but people might think, I, you, I guess you don't think about it, people might think that when we cut the mics, like we just hate each other or just like are indifferent towards each other. It doesn't really work that way. I don't know if that, maybe that adds to your enjoyment of the podcast or maybe it detracts from it. Maybe you want podcasts where there's like a, a frosty undercurrent. <laughs> You're not really going to get that here. So you might need to, to need to look elsewhere. We're only frosty during the winter, but um. Tsh. And occasionally, if there's a, if there's any frost to be had, it's during the game segment. Segway, tactic. I think you're hosting this week. You are you are the ultimate loser of the year. So Nerd Bomber and I kind of just competing for I don't know for kicks, whatever whatever you want to call it. But I I know you're very excited about the topic today. I don't know what it is as usual. So uh, I'll I'll turn the floor over to you. Take it away. So based on the level of oozing excitement, I'm surprised you haven't guessed the topic. It's drone trivia. Woo! <laughs> well, look at that. I feel ill positioned to win. Oh, My trust me, I know nothing. So this is going to be great. All right, so we're going to roll right into it. So a drone is actually immediately hedging. Will you will you fly right into it instead of rolling? Um, aircraft can roll, pitch, and yaw. So my first statement was perfectly fine. I just hope he doesn't drone on. You know what I mean? Do I have Do I have a bedumptus? No. Wait. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Tactic. Go ahead. So I'm gonna roll right into this, and uh, 
My first question is, a drone is defined as an unmanned aerial vehicle. When was the first successful, long-ranged, unpiloted, engine-driven aircraft? Who goes Wait, first when was it husband? what? Performed. <laughs> so this okay. doesn't uh, I guess I'll go first. I, I don't care. You can have the advantage chance. here. I feel like you're not talking about drones as we know them. I feel like you're just talking about unmanned vehicles. And it may not, like, it could have probably flown, like, 20 feet and then... Right, let, dove let, into the well, ocean let can you, can you clear, define long range so long range is defined as just short of a mile okay interesting <laughs> interesting definition uh but it's longer than 20 feet okay so nerbomber you said you were going to go first and by the way as far as what a drone is defined as it is not a quadcopter yeah everyone calling these things drones if if quadcopters are rc like radio control i mean they're not drones they're remote control a drone is right. autopilot, like it, it, it can fly Talking on its the own. the predator drones. Yeah. Right? Well, it depends which those predator drones. drone, too, because some of those are, are, are radio controlled, too. I feel like this was probably prior to the World Wars, because I feel like there were unmanned things then. I'm going to like very rudimentary, but still existed. So I'm going to say like 1900. Okay. Well, planes weren't invented until like 1904. I wanted to give myself some buffer. I I think uh, I think your 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 general idea is incorrect. So I'm going to say 1950. I think it was much later. So you both busted. Okay. So the idea of man in cockpit planes. So I was right. You were like, trying to was, get us. Was driven BC or something. You know, from the Wright brothers, they were the first. You know, able to be on there, but catapult launched aircraft that just puttered along on their own and just kind of balanced on their own came before that and the first successful one was by samuel p langley his aerodome number six in 1896 so i wasn't that far off no, you I were really close four actually. years yeah. bananas this is a dumb trick question to start off i want to i want to voice my displeasure with this how this quiz is going so far but let's let's continue okay with the trick well, questions. that's a you problem i guess whoa uh, so the biggest push for advancing drone technology has been due to the military. The most expensive drone aircraft ever is the Northrop Grumman X-47B. How much does one cost? Most expensive ever. I mean, $32 million. I feel like it is probably more. I'm going to say $100 million. Well, so this is taxpayer money at work, so it's $405 million per unit. That's obscene yeah okay i thought okay well yeah i don't know what else we can say about that other than that it's obscene but uh okay so uh nerd bombers on the board and as ex- as i expected i'm losing so we're, we're all more interested about the commercial side of drones because that's where that's the fun stuff we can play with right so what is the record for the highest flight of a commercial drone which by the way this is illegal without a permit so they just did it you know s- safely and kind of made the calls what are the units is it feet feet okay i feel like obviously there are drones i'm trying to think like what the highest building in like new york city is because i feel like there are drones up there i'm gonna say a thousand feet i feel like that's still too low but going with it yeah it's gonna be significantly more than that i'm gonna i'm not gonna plus one yeah i'm gonna say three thousand feet so the 3,000 feet was the good way to go. The current record is 11,000 feet by the DJI Phantom 2 drone. That's what I'm talking about. So it's tied up. Two questions to go. Do I have, do I have this correct? Yes. Let's do this. So the fastest commercial drone on the market is the DRL Racer X drone, 
What is its top recorded speed? These things can move. It's 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 105 miles an hour. It's definitely more than that. I'm going to plus one you because I can. I'm going to say 106. Nerd Bomber takes it. It is 179.78 miles per hour. That plus one is garbage. I but get one I a game. Accept. So do you. I accept the outcome. Uh, okay. Well, now it's question five and now you go first. So guess what's about to happen? Don't bust. <laughs> so the current record for longest drone flight time is the Skyfront drone due to it having a hybrid gas and electric power system. How long was its flight? I feel like it's still not that long. Can you tell me if this is in minutes or hours? It's in hours. Okay. I'm going to give it two hours. Okay. So I'm not going to plus one you because I I respect. I have respect for you and I respect games. (laughs) Uh, Four hours. I'm sure it's much more than both of these answers. Four hours. It is much more indeed. It's 13 hours, three minutes and 57 seconds. This thing was flying for a while. So we got ourselves a bit of a tie game. A bit, it's a bit of a tie. A okay, so tie. Are, we doing, are we doing a, a text-in tiebreaker? Sure. And the question is, so in 13 hours, 3 minutes, and 57 seconds, how far did they fly it? It's a great tiebreaker question, if I may. How long did you say 13 it was? 13 hours, yeah. Thir- 13 hours and how many minutes? 13 hours, 3 minutes, and 57 seconds. Okay. I'm in. I'm also in. I hate both of you because you both busted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought my answer was low. All right. Uh, well, you want to tell us the answer and then give us another question? It was 205 miles. Okay. I busted by a lot. I don't know if you did too, Nerd Bomber, but I was yeah. well over that. I said 1,300. I'll give you some insight. For whatever reason, I was like, okay, well, it's lower than the fastest one. So I gave it 100 miles per hour and then times 13 yeah, I, hours. So I gave it 50. So that was exactly half of your answer and it still was way too much. <laughs> that thing must have been crawling. All right. Uh, well... Look, we can stay here as long as it takes. One of us has to win. I'd like to have a drone. I don't know what I would use it for, though. I just kind of want to have it. Just fly it around up there and whatever happens, happens. So the Axis Vidius is the world's smallest quadcopter drone. What is its square dimensions in inches? This is a text in? Sure. Do you want square inches? One width. I'm saying it is a square. What is the width in inches? I got you. Okay. I have my answer in. So do I. Neither of you busted. Wow. Its width is 1.5 inches. Are you kidding me? And so Illegal got it right on the nose. Shoot. I, I nailed it exactly. That's what I'm talking about, baby. This thing weighs 0.55 pounds, by the way. For reference, mine was 0.75 inches. I thought it was going to be a little small boy. A little baby boy? Boy, I guess I almost busted then. But I, I didn't see this which thing against me... a gust of wind. Yeah, right. Probably not intended for those. It might be an indoor drone. I moved to 18 and 5, and there is one more quiz in the year. Nerd Bomber sits at 13 and 12, and Tactic at 11 and 11. So, once again, yeah, Tactic, you will be you will be doing the the, the bad thing, I think. We still we still don't know what it is yet. We'll have to figure that out offline. Uh, it'll we'll make sure it's embarrassing. Don't even worry about it. But in the meantime, we thank you for joining us. We want to thank Daniel Greenberg again for being with us. Uh, you can go check out uh, Ion Gaming. I, I think I thought of a thing, but on. I don't want to put myself up to it. Okay, that's very ominous. Yeah, we'll 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 have to tag up about that. I think I think we can. I think Nerd Bomber and I collectively could be more devious than you could be to yourself. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Thanks again to Daniel Greenberg, and uh, 
Thanks to all the listeners. Thanks to anyone who leaves us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Twitter at OnlineWarriors1, at OWIllegal86, at OWTechnic, and at OWNerdBomber. Talk to us about anything we talked about on the show today. Daniel also mentioned his Twitter handle uh, earlier in the episode. You can reach out to him as well. We will see you next week for the final episode of 2021. And in the meantime, get out there and go. Uh, you know when you go to the grocery store. Well, no, they don't do that anymore because of COVID. I was going to say find someone who's given out free samples. Also, we might have done that one already. Tell mm-hmm. Santa if you believe. You know what? Tell Santa. Leave him. When you leave the cookies and milk out for Santa on Christmas Eve, do like a PS. Listen to the Online Warriors podcast. Online Warriors podcast. Yeah, that's a re- that's maybe the best suggestion yet. It's also very holiday appropriate. So uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks for stopping by.